0: Right, time is now 1.33. Let's turn to the first part of uh, today's 1, 2, 3 show. And we hear from the authors of the International Literary Festival. Radio 3 intern Abhay Venkiti Raman talks to Professor of Politics John Keane from the University of Sydney and also award-winning journalist Dabashish Roy Chowdhury about their involvement in the festival and also their recently published book, To Kill a Democracy, India's Passage to Despotism. Take it away, Abhay. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. As you all know, the Hong Kong International Literary Festival is beginning today. So I'm here with two absolutely fascinating people who are going to be leading an event there. Debashi Jiroe Chowdhury is an award-winning journalist who's written for outlets such as the South China Morning Post and Time Magazine, whilst John Keen is a professor of politics at the University of Sydney and the Berlin Social Science Center. They've written a book called To Kill a Democracy india's passage to despotism and they're going to tell us a bit about it today so debashish john it's wonderful to have you here
1: thank you very much for the invitation api
0: thank you thank you for having us so my first question to you is really what brings you to the hkilf
1: well this is the hong kong launch of our book to kill a democracy it's a book that has already stirred up quite a lot of discussion elsewhere, and it has had an interesting reception in India so far. It's a book that tells a new story about why it is that democracy in India is uh, is in decline, why ratings agencies are beginning to get very worried. And may I add that inside India... There is a new language to describe what's uh, going on. At least there is a competition for for phrases. Some speak of a backsliding of democracy. Others are worried about the rise of Hindu nationalism. Our book uh, is an attempt to actually provide a different uh, way of thinking about what's going on.
0: The thesis of a lot of people is that, you know, India used to be this sort of booming, budding democracy. And then all of a sudden, once Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014, uh, you started to see this degradation of democratic norms in the country. Do you agree with that thesis? Or does your book posit uh, a
2: completely different set of ideas? Actually, what we say in the book is that what we are seeing in India is uh, has been going on for a long time. Of course, the pathologies have intensified many fold under Modi. We are witnessing widespread repression of dissent, uh, railroading of laws without consensus, and the increasingly blatant marginalization and victimization of the minorities, especially uh, India's 200 million Muslims. But there is also creeping capture of government institutions like the higher bureaucracy, the Judiciary, the Election Commission, and the media, we show in the book that these pathologies of institutional decay have um, intensified, but they're not wholly new. It is not that India was a beacon of democracy, as you said, uh, or till Modi showed up and then he came and destroyed it all. We explain how many of these institutional pathologies have developed over the decades to the point that you could call India an elective despotism. India holds the biggest elections in the world but no political party in India actually conducts internal elections. Legislators are bought and sold like cattle, bills are hardly debated in the house but again these are not happening for the first time in India. That's one big thesis of the book, the long-running institutional decay. We have a second big thesis for the book and that is when we study democratic decay We should not just examine the capture and hollowing out of governing institutions. Uh, High-level institutions uh, such as legislatures and bureaucracies, they rest on and they draw their legitimacy from what we call the social foundations of the people living down below. And the fact is that uh, the social foundations of Indian democracy uh, have been crumbling for a very long time. One could argue that
0: India's social foundations have always had this uh, rather disconcerting degree of inequality embedded within them. So you've had this really sort of quite hierarchical caste system. You've had a great deal of gender inequality. Considering that this is the case, do you actually think that attempts at creating a genuine egalitarian democracy, was that always a futile endeavor?
1: It has to be said that Democracy is a very special way of handling power. It's a very special way of life. Uh, up here. It's never a utopia that is fully achieved. Every known historical experiment with democracy sees it chasing greater equality and openness and accountability around corners and upstairs, you know, in, in into the sky, so to say. What's important, as we point out in the opening part of our book, is that India set out, as one of the first post-colonial countries, a republic, it set out to build a new kind of democracy. And there were many important achievements, despite these historic patterns of inequality that you spoke about. The writing of a state-of-the-art constitution, the commitment to, for example, secularism, in a way that North Americans and Europeans didn't understand. The Indian vision was that many faiths can coexist and be legally protected, and there can be a kind of equalization of their respective dignities. So India set out on the pathway to democracy, what it raises the question of what is democracy? Well, we say in the book that of course, it's nothing less than free and fair elections. And India has a long track record from the early 1950s in practicing uh, elections. It's, It's nothing less than elections, but it's something much more. And that much more is public accountability of power, wherever it is exercised independent watchdog bodies like judiciaries and parliaments with teeth but we say in this book it's pretty neglected theme in lots of writing about democracy democracy is a whole way of life and that means in the field of social life democracy stands for a way of life in which dignity is important in which violence bullying bossing are not cool and in this respect democracy is a very special political form because it in pursuing the 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 adventure of greater equality it denatures power that is it creates the sense that things can be changed that that inequalities are not god-given they are not to be dictated by caste they are not to be determined by imbalances of wealth these inequalities can be changed. And that's the fundamental core of the democratic idea.
0: Uh, You've talked a lot about how the state has sort of failed to provide basic needs these sort of social emergencies where you have this healthcare crisis that uh, was exposed by coronavirus you have uh, situations where entire towns have just been completely engulfed by pollution created by big corporations where hundreds of thousands of people still have to deal with starvation so how do these social emergencies relate to the death of democracy and are they contributing to institutional decay or or do you see it as being sort of the other way around?
2: Actually, these are not completely independent of one another. There is often a feedback loop between social emergencies and institutional decay. Let's uh, take the example of public representatives. The absence of a welfare state and lack of universal access to public goods, this breeds a life of indignity which John mentioned earlier, Uh, this in turn leads to powerlessness and adds to the psychological sense of uh, lack of personal control and uncertainty. And it's fairly well established uh, um, in social sciences how people tend to take refuge in group identity to reduce self uncertainty and how they seek to make up their individual powerlessness with the power of the group the more chronic and pervasive the indignity and the sense of uncertainty, the greater the preference for strong and authoritarian group leaders. In situations like these, politics becomes more polarized, politics becomes more violent, and people basically stop looking for representatives. They start looking for saviors. So what happens is that a certain kind of politicians with a certain kind of personality get to take charge of the governing institutions and the adverse impact they have on institutions is hardly a surprise. So social emergencies and institutional decay, I would say, they feed each other. They're not completely independent of each other.
0: You've hinted at the role of elections uh, throughout this interview. So elections obviously play an important role in holding politicians to account. So to what extent can India's elections be classified as free, fair, and democratic?
1: What is clear, from the evidence that we table in our book is that there is a growing problem of what Deb earlier called electoral autocracy. The degradation of parties and elections by all kinds of forces, dark money, uh, violence, by practices th- that involve capturing of um, of opponents, um, <laughs> resorting, it's called, and also, it's not only that degradation of uh, elections in, in in India, but it's the kind of fetish of elections. One Indian scholar has referred to India as a case of sephocracy. You know, it's as if democracy has been reduced to elections. Well, all those processes are now seriously degraded.
0: You've talked about throughout this interview, this creeping transition towards a form of despotism. I mean, is there any cause for hope? And what must be done to revive India's institutions and to stall this transition towards despotism?
1: Well, our book, To Kill a Democracy, could have been entitled How Democracies Survive and Flourish because everything that we write about in our book is uh, yes about the degrading of the ideals of democracy, but throughout the book there are of course suggestions and and ideas about um, how these processes can be reversed. Towards the end of the book, we pinpoint a number of counter trends. you know it's it's worth bearing in mind that in 2019 less than 40 percent, of uh, voters voted for the BJP. There are tussles and resistances coming from states and regional parties. India is a tapestry of uh, different divisions, languages, ethnic backgrounds, caste backgrounds, and so on. And therefore, the task of at the centre building One India under the slogans like uh, Jai Sri Ram and so on are difficult to pull off. Um, there's lots of life left in the Indian uh, polity. We don't know uh, what the outcome is going to be, but we do say towards the end that hope is a very important resource and all of these counter trends are sources of hope that Indian democracy will not be killed, not be replaced by a kind of phantom democracy, um, a kind of despotic concentration of power in the name of the people. This is not a necessary outcome, but this drift towards despotism will succeed unless millions of Indian citizens refuse to allow it to happen.
2: If I may add here, Abhay, very quickly, is that uh, institutions can be broken, but they can also heal quickly. We saw this after uh, Indira Gandhi was defeated in the 1977 election, following the 21-month emergency she imposed, during which she suspended fundamental rights and basically captured all institutions. But the new government that took over managed to undo many of the institutional damages that she had inflicted on the system. Or the judiciary is a great example. So yes, it is feasible to revive institutions after a bout of despotic rule. But if we were to talk about about more fundamental structural repair, not just at the federal level, but in the states as well, then a more thorough forensics would be in order. And we have done that throughout the book. I think the prescription lies in the diagnosis which the book provides. And personally, I think on many aspects of institution building, we need to go back to the drawing board and see what we have been doing wrong for 75 years. And if there is a political will, it can be fixed.
0: John, Devajeej, really profound insights throughout this interview. Thank you so much for coming in. I've really learned a lot throughout these few minutes. And also thank you to everyone who's been tuning in. If you're interested... Uh, in hearing more of these profound insights from the Bashi John, do check out their event. It's tomorrow from 2 to 3 p.m. online. Check out festival.org.hk for further details. And I hope to see you there. Many thanks once again to you, Abe, for a wonderful feature, really intelligent discussion, and definitely a worthy talk to go to. Thank you once again, Abe.